Part One, Chapter Four of A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter Four George Harris. The character of George Harris has been represented as overdrawn, both as respects personal qualities and general intelligence. It has been said, too, that so many afflictive incidents happening to a slave are improbable and present a distorted view of the institution in regard to person it must be remembered that the half-breeds often inherit to a great degree the traits of their white ancestors for this there is abundant evidence in the advertisements of the papers witness the following from the chattanooga tennessee gazette october fifth eighteen fifty two five hundred dollar reward run away from the subscriber on the twenty fifth may a very bright mulatto boy about twenty one or twenty two years old named wash said boy without close observation might pass himself for a white man as he is very bright has sandy hair blue eyes and a fine set of teeth he is an excellent bricklayer but i have no idea that he will pursue his trade for fear of detection although he is like a white man in appearance he has the disposition of a negro and delights in comic songs and witty expressions he is an excellent house servant very handy about a hotel tall slender and has rather a down look especially when spoken to and is sometimes inclined to be sulky i have no doubt but he has been decoyed off by some scoundrel and i will give the above reward for the apprehension of the boy and thief if delivered at chattanooga or i will give two hundred dollars for the boy alone or a hundred dollars if confined in any jail in the united states so that i can get him george o ragland chattanooga june fifteenth eighteen fifty two from the capitolian vis a vis west baton rouge louisiana november first eighteen fifty two one hundred and fifty dollar reward run away about the fifteenth of august last joe a yellow man small about five feet eight or nine inches high and about twenty years of age has a roman nose was raised in new orleans and speaks french and english he was bought last winter of mr diggs banks arcade new orleans in regard to general intelligence the reader will recollect that the writer stated it is a fact which she learned while on a journey through kentucky that a young colored man invented a machine for cleaning hemp like that alluded to in her story advertisements also occasionally propose for sale artisans of different descriptions slaves are often employed as pilots for vessels and highly valued for their skill and knowledge the following are advertisements from recent newspapers from the south carolinian columbia december fourth eighteen fifty two valuable negroes at auction by j and l t levin will be sold on monday the sixth day of december the following valuable negroes andrew twenty-four years of age a bricklayer and plasterer and thorough workman george twenty-two years of age one of the best barbers in the state james nineteen years of age an excellent painter these boys were raised in columbia and are exceptions to most of boys and are sold for no fault whatever the terms of sale are one-half cash the balance on a credit of six months with interest for notes payable at bank with two or more improved endorsers purchasers to pay for necessary papers william douglas november twenty seventh thirty six 
from the same paper of November 18, 1852, will be sold at private sale. A likely man, boat hand, and good pilot is well acquainted with all the inlets between here and Savannah and Georgetown. With regard to the incidents of George Harris's life, that he may not be supposed a purely exceptional case, we propose to offer some parallel facts from the lives of slaves of our personal acquaintance. Lewis Clark is an acquaintance of the writer. Soon after his escape from slavery, he was received into the family of a sister-in-law of the author, and there educated. His conduct during this time was such as to win for him uncommon affection and respect, and the author has frequently heard him spoken of in the highest terms by all who knew him. The gentleman in whose family he so long resided says of him in a recent letter to the writer, I would trust him, as the saying is, with untold gold. Lewis is a quadroon, a fine-looking man with European features, hair slightly wavy, and with an intelligent, agreeable expression of countenance. The reader is now desired to compare the following incidents of his life, part of which he related personally to the author with the incidents of the life of george harris his mother was a handsome quadroon woman the daughter of her master and given by him in marriage to a free white man a scotchman with the express understanding that she and her children were to be free this engagement if made sincerely at all was never complied with his mother had nine children and on the death of her husband came back with all these children as slaves in her father's house a married daughter of the family who was the dread of the whole household on account of the violence of her temper, had taken from the family upon her marriage a young girl. By the violence of her abuse, she soon reduced the child to a state of idiocy, and then came imperiously back to her father's establishment, declaring that the child was good for nothing, and that she would have another, and as poor Lewis's evil star would have it, fixed her eye upon him. To avoid one of her terrible outbreaks of temper, the family offered up this boy as a pacificatory sacrifice. The incident is thus described by Lewis in a published narrative. Every boy was ordered in to pass before this female sorceress that she might select a victim for her unprovoked malice and on whom to pour the vials of her wrath for years. I was that unlucky fellow. Mr. Campbell, my grandfather, objected because it would divide a family and offered her Moses but objections and claims of every kind were swept away by the wild passion and shrill-toned voice of Mrs. B. Me she would have, and none else. Mr. Campbell went out to hunt and drive away bad thoughts. The old lady became quiet, for she was sure none of her blood run in my veins, and if there was any of her husband's there, it was no fault of hers. Slave-holding women are always revengeful towards the children of slaves, that have any of the blood of their husbands in them i was too young only seven years of age to understand what was going on but my poor and affectionate mother understood and appreciated it all when she left the kitchen of the mansion house where she was employed as cook and came home to her own little cottage the tear of anguish was in her eye and the image of sorrow upon every feature of her face she knew the female nero whose rod was now to be over me that night sleep departed from her eyes with the youngest child clasped firmly to her bosom, she spent the night in walking the floor, coming ever and anon to lift up the clothes and look at me and my poor brother, who lay sleeping together. Sleeping, I said. Brother slept, but not I. 
I saw my mother when she first came to me, and I could not sleep. The vision of that night, its deep and effaceable impression, is now before my mind, with all the distinctness of yesterday. In the morning I was put into the carriage with Mrs. B. and her children, and my weary pilgrimage of suffering was fairly begun. Mrs. Banton is a character that can only exist where the laws of the land clothe with absolute power the coarsest, most brutal, and violent-tempered, equally with the most generous and humane. If irresponsible power is a trial to the virtue of the most watchful and careful, how fast must it develop cruelty in those who are naturally violent and brutal? This woman was united to a drunken husband of a temper equally ferocious, a recital of all the physical torture which this pair contrived to inflict on a hapless child, some of which have left ineffaceable marks on his person, would be too trying to humanity, and we gladly draw a veil over it. Some incidents, however, are presented in the following extracts. A very trivial offense was sufficient to call forth a great burst of indignation from this woman of ungoverned passions. In my simplicity, I put my lips to the same vessel, and drank out of it, from which her children were accustomed to drink. She expressed her utter abhorrence of such an act by throwing my head violently back and dashing into my face two dippers of water. The shower of water was followed by a heavier shower of kicks, but the words, bitter and cutting, that followed were like a storm of hail upon my young heart. She would teach me better manners than that. She would let me know I was to be brought up to her hand, she would have one slave that knew his place. If I wanted water, go to the spring, and not drink there in the house. This was new times for me. For some days I was completely benumbed with my sorrow. If there be one so lost to all feeling as even to say that the slaves do not suffer when families are separated, let such a one go to the ragged quilt, which was my couch and pillow, and stand there night after night for long weary hours and see the bitter tears streaming down the face of that more than orphan boy, while with half-suppressed sighs and sobs he calls again and again upon his absent mother. Say, wast thou conscious of the tears I shed, hovered thy spirit over thy sorrowing son, wretch even then, life's journey just begun. He was employed till late at night in spinning flax or rocking the baby, and called at a very early hour in the morning and if he did not start at the first summons, a cruel chastisement was sure to follow. He says, Such horror has seized me, lest I might not hear the first shrill call, that I have often in dreams fancied I heard that unwelcome voice, and have leaped from my couch, and walked through the house, and out of it before I awoke. I have gone and called the other slaves in my sleep, and asked them if they did not hear master call. Never, while I live, will the remembrance of those long bitter nights of fear pass from my mind. He adds to this words which should be deeply pondered by those who lay the flattering unction of their souls that the oppressed do not feel the sundering of family ties. But all my severe labor and bitter and cruel punishment for these ten years of captivity with this worse-than-Arab family, all these were nothing to the sufferings I experienced by being separated from my mother brothers and sisters the same things with them near to sympathize with me to hear my story of sorrow would have been comparatively tolerable they were distant only about thirty miles and yet in ten long lonely years of childhood i was only permitted to see them three times 
my mother occasionally found an opportunity to send me some token of remembrance and affection a sugar-plum or an apple but i scarcely ever ate them they were laid up and handled and wept over till they wasted away in my hand my thoughts continually by day and my dreams by night were of mother and home and the horror experienced in the morning when i awoke and behold it was a dream is beyond the power of language to describe lewis had a beautiful sister by the name of delia who on the death of her grandfather was sold with all the other children of his mother for the purpose of dividing the estate she was a pious girl a member of the baptist church she fell into the hands of a brutal drunken man who wished to make her his mistress milton clark a brother of lewis in the narrative of his life describes the scene where he with his mother stood at the door while this girl was brutally whipped before it for wishing to conform to the principle of her christian profession as her resolution was unconquerable she was placed in a coffle and sent down to the new orleans market here she was sold to a frenchman named coville he took her to mexico emancipated and married her after residing some time in france and the west indies with him he died leaving her a fortune of twenty or thirty thousand dollars at her death she endeavored to leave this by will to purchase the freedom of her brothers but as a slave cannot take property or even have it left in trust for him they never received any of it the incidents of the recovery of lewis's freedom are thus told i had long thought and dreamed of liberty i was now determined to make an effort to gain it no tongue can tell the doubt the perplexities the anxiety which a slave feels when making up his mind upon this subject if he makes an effort and is not successful he must be laughed at by his fellows he will be beaten unmercifully by the master and then watched and used the harder for it all his life and then if he gets away who what will he find he is ignorant of the world all the white part of mankind that he has ever seen are enemies to him and all his kindred how can he venture where none but white faces shall greet him the master tells him that abolitionists decoy slaves off into the free states to catch them and sell them to louisiana or mississippi and if he goes to canada the british will put him in a mine underground with both eyes put out for life how does he know what or whom to believe a horror of great darkness comes upon him as he thinks over what may befall him long very long time did i think of escaping before i made the effort at length the report was started that i was to be sold for louisiana then i thought it was time to act my mind was made up what my feelings were when i reached the free shore can be better imagined than described i trembled all over with deep emotion and i could feel my hair rise up on my head i was on what was called a free soil among a people who had no slaves i saw white men at work and no slave smarting beneath the lash everything was indeed new and wonderful not knowing where to find a friend and being ignorant of the country unwilling to inquire lest i should betray my ignorance it was a whole week before i reached cincinnati at one place where i put up i had a great many more questions put to me than i wished to answer at another place i was very much annoyed by the officiousness of the landlord who made it a point to supply every guest with newspapers i took the copy handed me and turned it over in a somewhat awkward manner i suppose he came to me to point out a veto or some other very important news i thought it best to decline his assistance and gave up the paper saying my eyes were not in a fit condition to read much at another place the neighbors on learning that a kentuckian was at the tavern 
came in great earnestness to find out what my business was kentuckians sometimes came there to kidnap their citizens they were in the habit of watching them close i at length satisfied them by assuring them that i was not nor my father before me any slaveholder at all but lest their suspicion should be excited in another direction i added my grandfather was a slaveholder at daylight we were in canada when i stepped ashore there i said sure enough i am free good heavens what a sensation when it first visits the bosom of a full-grown man one born to bondage one who had been taught from early infancy that this was his inevitable lot for life not till then did i dare to cherish for a moment the feeling that one of the limbs of my body was my own the slaves often say when cut in the hand or foot plague on it old foot or the old hand it is master's let him take care of it nigger don't care if he never get well my hands my feet were now my own it will be recollected that george in conversing with eliza gives an account of a scene in which he was violently beaten by his master's young son this incident was suggested by the following letters from john m nelson to mr theodore weld given in slavery as it is page fifty one mr nelson removed from virginia to highland county ohio many years since where he is extensively known and respected the letter is dated january third eighteen thirty nine i was born and raised in augusta county virginia my father was an elder in the presbyterian church and was owner of about twenty slaves he was what was generally termed a good master his slaves were generally tolerably well fed and clothed and not overworked they were sometimes permitted to attend church and called into family worship few of them however availed themselves of these privileges on some occasions i have seen him whip them severely particularly for the crime of trying to obtain their liberty or for what was called running away for this they were scourged more severely than for anything else after they had been retaken i have seen them stripped naked and suspended by the hands sometimes to a tree sometimes to a post until their toes barely touched the ground and whipped with a cowhide until the blood dripped from their backs a boy named jack particularly i have seen served in this way more than once when i was quite a child i recollect it grieved me very much to see one tied up to be whipped and i used to intercede with tears in their behalf and mingle my cries with theirs and feel almost willing to take part of the punishment i have been severely rebuked by my father for this kind of sympathy yet such is the hardened nature of such scenes that from this kind of commiseration for the suffering slave i became so blunted that i could not only witness their stripes with composure but myself inflict them and that without remorse one case i have often looked back to with sorrow and contrition particularly since i have been convinced that negroes are men when i was perhaps fourteen or fifteen years of age i undertook to correct a young fellow named ned for some supposed offence i think it was leaving a bridle out of its proper place he being larger and stronger than myself took hold of my arms and held me in order to prevent my striking him this i considered the height of insolence and cried for help when my father and mother both came running to my rescue my father stripped and tied him and took him into the orchard where switches were plenty and directed me to whip him when one switch wore out he supplied me with others after i had whipped him a while he fell on his knees to implore forgiveness and i kicked him in the face my father said don't kick him but whip him 
This I did until his back was literally covered with welts. I know I have repented, and trust I have obtained pardon for these things. My father owned a woman we used to call Aunt Grace. She was purchased in old Virginia. She has told me that her old master in his will gave her her freedom, but at his death his sons had sold her to my father. When he bought her she manifested some unwillingness to go with him. When she was put in irons and taken by force, this was before I was born, but I remember to have seen the irons, and was told that was what they had been used for. Aunt Grace is still living, and must be between seventy and eighty years of age. She has, for the last forty years, been an exemplary Christian. When I was a youth I took some pains to learn her to read. This is now a great consolation to her, since age and infirmity have rendered her of little value to her owners. She is permitted to read as much as she pleases. This she can do with the aid of glasses and the old family Bible, which is almost the only book she has ever looked into. This, with some little mending for the black children, is all she does. She is still held as a slave. I well remember what a heart-rending scene there was in the family when my father sold her husband. This was, I suppose, thirty-five years ago, and yet my father was considered one of the best of masters. I know of few who were better, but of many who were worse. With regard to the intelligence of George, and his teaching himself to read and write, there is a most interesting and affecting parallel to it in the life of Frederick Douglass, a book which can be recommended to any one who has a curiosity to trace the working of an intelligent and active mind through all the squalid misery, degradation, and oppression of slavery. A few incidents will be given. Like Clark, Douglas was the son of a white man. He was a plantation slave in a proud old family. His situation, probably, may be considered as an average one. That is to say, he led a life of dirt, degradation, discomfort of various kinds, made tolerable as a matter of daily habit, and considered as enviable in comparison with the lot of those who suffer worse abuse. An incident which Douglas relates of his mother is touching. He states that it is customary at an early age to separate mothers from their children, for the purpose of blunting and deadening natural affection. When he was three years old, his mother was sent to work on a plantation eight or ten miles distant, and after that he never saw her except in the night. After her day's toil, she would occasionally walk over to her child, lie down with him in her arms, hush him to sleep in her bosom, then rise up and walk back again to be ready for her field work by daylight. Now we ask the high-born lady in England or America, who is a mother, whether this does not show that this poor field laborer had in her bosom, beneath her dirt and rags, a true mother's heart. The last and bitterest indignity which has been heaped on the head of the unhappy slaves has been the denial to them of those holy affections which God gives alike to all. We are told in fine phrase by languid ladies of fashion that it is not to be supposed that those creatures have the same feelings that we have, when perhaps the very speaker could not endure one tithe of the fatigue and suffering which the slave mother often bears for her child. Every mother who has a mother's heart within her ought to know that this is blasphemy against nature, and, standing between the cradle of her living and the grave of her dead child, should indignantly reject such a slander on all motherhood. Douglas thus relates the account of his learning to read, after he had been removed to the situation of house-servant in Baltimore. It seems that his mistress, newly married, and unaccustomed to the management of slaves, was very kind to him. 
and among other acts of kindness commenced teaching him to read his master discovering what was going on he says at once forbade mrs old to instruct me further telling her among other things that it was unlawful as well as unsafe to teach a slave to read to use his own words further he said if you give a nigger an inch he will take an l a nigger should know nothing but to obey his master to do as he is told to do learning would spoil the best nigger in the world now said he if you teach that nigger speaking of myself how to read there would be no keeping him it would forever unfit him to be a slave he would at once become unmanageable and of no value to his master as to himself it could do him no good but a great deal of harm it would make him discontented and unhappy their words sank deep into my heart stirred up sentiments within that lay slumbering and called into existence an entirely new train of thought it was a new and special revelation explaining dark and mysterious things with which my youthful understanding had struggled but struggled in vain i now understood what had been to me a most perplexing difficulty to wit the white man's power to enslave the black man it was a grand achievement and i prized it highly from that moment i understood the pathway from slavery to freedom after this his mistress was as watchful to prevent his learning to read as she had before been to instruct him his course after this he thus describes from this time i was most narrowly watched if i was in a separate room any considerable length of time i was sure to be suspected of having a book and was at once called to give an account of myself all this however was too late the first step had been taken mistress in teaching me the alphabet had given me the inch and no precaution could prevent me from taking the l the plan which i adopted and the one by which i was most successful was that of making friends of all the little white boys whom i met in the street as many of these as i could i converted into teachers with their kindly aid obtained at different times and in different places i finally succeeded in learning to read when i was sent on errands i always took my book with me and by going one part of my errand quickly i found time to get a lesson before my return i used also to carry bread with me enough of which was always in the house and to which i was always welcome for i was much better off in this regard than many of the poor white children in our neighborhood this bread i used to bestow upon the hungry little urchin who in return would give me that more valuable bread of knowledge i am strongly tempted to give the names of two or three of those little boys as a testimonial of the gratitude and affection i bear them but prudence forbids not that it would injure me but it might embarrass them for it is almost an unpardonable offence to teach slaves to read in this christian country it is enough to say of the dear little fellows that they lived on philpot street very near durgan and bailey's shipyard i used to talk this matter of slavery over with them i would sometimes say to them i wished i could be as free as they would be when they got to be men you will be free as soon as you are twenty-one but i am a slave for life have not i as good a right to be free as you have these words used to trouble them they would express to me the liveliest sympathy and console me with the hope that something would occur by which i might be free i was now about twelve years old and the thought of being a slave for life began to bear heavily upon my heart just about this time i got hold of a book entitled the columbian orator every opportunity i got i used to read this book among much of other interesting matter 
I found in it a dialogue between a master and his slave. The slave was represented as having run away from his master three times. The dialogue represented the conversation which took place between them when the slave was retaken the third time. In this dialogue the whole argument in behalf of slavery was brought forward by the master, all of which was disposed of by the slave. The slave was made to say some very smart as well as impressive things in reply to his master, things which had the desired though unexpected effect, for the conversation resulted in the voluntary emancipation of the slave on the part of the master. In the same book I met with one of Sheridan's mighty speeches on and in behalf of Catholic emancipation. These were choice documents to me. I read them over and over again with unbated interest. They gave tongue to interesting thoughts of my own soul, which had frequently flashed through my mind, and died away for want of utterance. The moral which I gained from the dialogue was the power of truth over the conscience of even a slaveholder. What I got from Sheridan was a bold denunciation of slavery, and a powerful vindication of human rights. The reading of these documents enabled me to utter my thoughts, and to meet the arguments brought forward to sustain slavery. But while they relieved me of one difficulty, they brought on another even more painful than the one of which I was relieved. The more I read, the more I was led to abhor and detest my enslavers. I could regard them in no other light than a band of successful robbers who had left their homes and gone to Africa and stolen us from our homes and in a strange land reduced us to slavery. I loathed them as being the meanest as well as the most wicked of men as i read and contemplated the subject behold that very discontent which master hugh had predicted would follow my learning to read had already come to torment and sting my soul to unutterable anguish as i writhed under it i would at times feel that learning to read had been a curse rather than a blessing it had given me a view of my wretched condition without the remedy it opened my eyes to a the horrible pit but to no ladder upon which to get out in moments of agony i envied my fellow-slaves for their stupidity i have often wished myself a beast i preferred the condition of the meanest reptile to my own anything no matter what to get rid of thinking it was this everlasting thinking of my condition that tormented me there was no getting rid of it it was pressed upon me by every object within sight or hearing animate or inanimate the silver trump of freedom had roused my soul to eternal wakefulness freedom now appeared to disappear no more for ever. It was heard in every sound, and seen in every thing. It was ever present to torment me with a sense of my wretched condition. I saw nothing without seeing it. I heard nothing without hearing it, and felt nothing without feeling it. It looked from every star. It smiled in every calm, breathed in every wind, and moved in every storm. I often found myself regretting my own existence, and wishing myself dead and but for the hope of being free i have no doubt but that i should have killed myself or done something for which i should have been killed while in this state of mind i was eager to hear any one speak of slavery i was a ready listener every little while i could hear something about the abolitionists it was some time before i found what the word meant it was always used in such connections as to make it an interesting word to me if a slave ran away and succeeded in getting clear or if a slave killed his master, set fire to a barn, or did anything very wrong in the mind of a slaveholder, it was spoken of as the fruit of abolition. 
Hearing the word in this connection very often, I set about learning what it meant. The dictionary afforded me little or no help. I found it was the act of abolishing, but then I did not know what was to be abolished. Here I was perplexed. I did not dare to ask anyone about its meaning, for I was satisfied that it was something they wanted me to know very little about. After a patient waiting, I got one of our city papers containing an account of the number of petitions from the North praying for the abolition of slavery in the District of Columbia and of the slave trade between the states. From this time I understood the words abolition and abolitionist and always drew near when that word was spoken, expecting to hear something of importance to myself and fellow slaves. The light broke in upon me by degrees. I went one day down on the wharf of Mr. Waters, and seeing two Irishmen unloading a scow of stone, I went unasked and helped them. When we had finished, one of them came to me and asked me if I were a slave. I told him I was. He asked, Are ye a slave for life? I told him that I was. The good Irishman seemed to be deeply affected by the statement. He said to the other that it was a pity so fine a little fellow as myself should be a slave for life. He said it was a shame to hold me. They both advised me to run away to the north, that I should find friends there, and that I should be free. I pretended not to be interested in what they said, and treated them as if I did not understand them, for I feared they might be treacherous. White men have been known to encourage slaves to escape, and then to get the reward, catch them, and return them to their masters. I was afraid that these seemingly good men might use me so, but I nevertheless remembered their advice, and from that time I resolved to run away. I looked forward to a time at which it would be safe for me to escape. I was too young to think of doing so immediately. Besides, I wished to learn how to write, as I might have occasion to write my own past. I consoled myself with the hope that I should one day find a good chance. Meanwhile, I would learn to write. The idea as to how I might learn to write was suggested to me by being in Durgan and Bailey's shipyard and frequently seeing the ship carpenters after hewing and getting a piece of timber ready for use, write on the timber the name of that part of the ship for which it was intended. When a piece of timber was intended for the larboard side, it would be marked thus L. When a piece was for the starboard side, it would be marked thus S. A piece for the larboard side forward would be marked thus LF. When a piece was for the starboard side forward, it would be marked thus SF. For larboard aft, it would be marked thus L-A. For starboard aft, it would be marked thus S-A. I soon learned the names of these letters and for what they were intended when placed upon a piece of timber in the shipyard. I immediately commenced copying them, and in a short time was able to make the four letters named. After that, when I met with any boy who I knew could write, I would tell him I could write as well as he. The next word would be, I don't believe you. Let me see you try it. I would then make the letters which I had been so fortunate as to learn, and ask him to beat that. In this way I got a good many lessons in writing, which it is quite possible I should never have gotten in any other way. During this time my copy-book was the board fence, brick wall, and pavement. My pen and ink was a lump of chalk. With these I learned mainly how to write. I then commenced and continued copying the italics in Webster's spelling-book, until I could make them all without looking on the book. By this time, my little master Thomas had gone to school and learned how to write, and had written over a number of copy books. These had been brought home, 
and shown to some of our near neighbors and then laid aside my mistress used to go to class meeting at the wilk street meeting-house every monday afternoon and leave me to take care of the house when left thus i used to spend the time in writing in the spaces left in master thomas's copy-book copying what he had written i continued to do this until i could write a hand very similar to that of master thomas thus after a long tedious effort for years i finally succeeded in learning how to write these few quoted incidents will show that the case of george harris is by no means so uncommon as might be supposed let the reader peruse the account which george harris gives of the sale of his mother and her children and then read the following account given by the venerable josiah henson now pastor of the missionary settlement at dawn in canada after the death of his master he says the slaves of the plantation were all put up at auction and sold to the highest bidder my brothers and sisters were bid off one by one while my mother holding my hand looked on in an agony of grief the cause of which i but ill understood at first but which dawned on my mind with dreadful clearness as the sale proceeded my mother was then separated from me and put up in her turn she was bought by a man named isaac r residing in montgomery county maryland and then i was offered to the assembled purchasers my mother half distracted with the parting forever from all her children pushed through the crowd while the bidding for me was going on to the spot where r was standing she fell at his feet and clung to his knees entreating him in tones that a mother only could command to buy her baby as well as herself and spare to her one of her little ones at least will it can it be believed that this man thus appealed to was capable not merely of turning a deaf ear to her supplication but of disengaging himself from her with such violent blows and kicks as to reduce her to the necessity of creeping out of his reach and mingling the groan of bodily suffering with the sob of a breaking heart now all these incidents that have been given are real incidents of slavery related to those who know slavery by the best of all tests experience and they are given by men who have earned a character in freedom which makes their words as good as the word of any man living the case of lewis clark might be called a harder one than common the case of douglas is probably a very fair average specimen the writer has conversed in her time with a very considerable number of liberated slaves many of whom stated that their own individual lot had been comparatively a mild one but she never talked with one who did not let fall first or last some incident which he had observed some scene which he had witnessed which went to show some most horrible abuse of the system and what was most affecting about it the narrator often evidently considered it so much a matter of course as to mention it incidentally without any particular emotion it is supposed by many that the great outcry among those who are opposed to slavery comes from a morbid reading of unauthenticated accounts gotten up in abolition papers etc this idea is a very mistaken one the accounts which tell against the slave system are derived from the continual living testimony of the poor slave himself often from that of the fugitives from slavery who are continually passing through our northern cities as a specimen of some of the incidents thus developed is given the following fact of recent occurrence related to the author by a lady in boston this lady who was much in the habit of visiting the poor was sent for a month or two since to see a mulatto woman who had just arrived at a colored boarding-house near by 
and who appeared to be in much dejection of mind a little conversation showed her to be a fugitive her history was as follows she with her brother were as is often the case both the children and slaves of their master at his death they were left to his legitimate daughter as her servants and treated with as much consideration as very common kind of people might be expected to show to those who were entirely and in every respect at their disposal the wife of her brother ran away to canada and as there was some talk of selling her and her child in consequence of some embarrassment in the family affairs her brother a fine-spirited young man determined to effect her escape also to a land of liberty he concealed her for some time in the back part of an obscure dwelling in the city till he could find an opportunity to send her off while she was in this retreat he was indefatigable in his attentions to her frequently bringing her fruit and flowers and doing everything he could to beguile the weariness of her imprisonment at length the steward of a vessel whom he had obliged offered to conceal him on board the ship and give him a chance to escape the noble-hearted fellow though tempted by an offer which would enable him immediately to join his wife to whom he was tenderly attached preferred to give this offer to his sister and during the absence of the captain of the vessel she and her child were brought on board and secreted the captain when he returned and discovered what had been done was very angry as the thing if detected would have involved him in very serious difficulties he declared at first that he would send the woman up into town to jail but by her entreaties and those of the steward was induced to wait till evening and send word to her brother to come and take her back after dark the brother came on board and instead of taking his sister away began to appeal to the humanity of the captain in the most moving terms he told his sister's history and his own and pleaded eloquently his desire for her liberty the captain had determined to be obdurate but alas he was only a man perhaps he had himself a wife and child perhaps he felt that were he in the young man's case he would do just so for his sister be it as it may he was at last overcome he said to the young man i must send you away from my ship i'll put off a boat and see you got into it and you must row off and never let me see your face again and if after all you should come back and get on board it will be your fault and not mine so in the rain and darkness the young man and his sister and child were lowered over the side of the vessel and rowed away after a while the ship weighed anchor but before she reached boston it was discovered that the woman and child were on board the lady to whom this story was related was requested to write a letter in certain terms to a person in the city whence the fugitive had come to let the brother know of her safe arrival the fugitive was furnished with work by which she could support herself and child and the lady carefully attended to her once for a few weeks one morning she came in with a good deal of agitation exclaiming oh ma'am he's come george is come and in a few minutes the young man was introduced the lady who gave this relation belongs to the first circles of boston society she says that she never was more impressed by the personal manners of any gentleman than by those of this fugitive brother so much did he have the air of a perfect finished gentleman that she felt she could not question him with regard to his escape with the familiarity with which persons of his condition are commonly approached and it was not till he requested her to write a letter for him because he could not write himself that she could realize that this fine specimen of manhood had been all his life a slave the remainder of the history is no less romantic 
the lady had a friend in montreal whither george's wife had gone and after furnishing money to pay their expenses she presented them with a letter to this gentleman requesting the latter to assist the young man in finding his wife when they landed at montreal george stepped on shore and presented this letter to the first man he met asking him if he knew to whom it was directed the gentleman proved to be the very person to whom the letter was addressed he knew george's wife brought him to her without delay so that by return mail the lady had the satisfaction of learning the happy termination of the adventure this is but a specimen of histories which are continually transpiring so that those who speak of slavery can say we speak that which we do know and testify that we have seen but we shall be told the slaves are all a lying race and that these are lies which they tell us there are some things however about these slaves which cannot lie those deep lines of patient sorrow upon the face that attitude of crouching and humble subjection that sad habitual expression of hope deferred in the eye would tell their story if the slave never spoke it is not long since the writer has seen faces such as might haunt one's dreams for weeks suppose a poor worn-out mother sickly feeble and old her hands worn to the bone with hard unpaid toil whose nine children have been sold to the slave trader and whose tenth soon is to be sold unless by her labor as washerwoman she can raise nine hundred dollars such are the kind of cases constantly coming to one's knowledge such are the witnesses which will not let us sleep doubt has been expressed whether such a thing as an advertisement for a man dead or alive like the advertisement for george harris was ever published in the southern states the scene of the story in which that occurs is supposed to be laid a few years back at the time when the black laws of ohio were passed that at this time such advertisements were common in the newspapers there is abundant evidence that they are less common now is a matter of hope and gratulation in the year eighteen thirty nine mr theodore d weld made a systematic attempt to collect and arrange the statistics of slavery a mass of facts and statistics were gathered some were authenticated with the most unquestionable accuracy some of the one thousand witnesses whom he brings upon the stand were ministers lawyers merchants and men of various other callings who were either natives of the slave states or had been residents there for many years of their life many of these were slaveholders others of the witnesses were or had been slave drivers or officers of coasting vessels engaged in the slave trade another part of his evidence was gathered from public speeches in congress in the state legislatures and elsewhere but the majority of it was taken from recent newspapers the papers from which these facts were copied were preserved and put on file in a public place where they remained for some years for the information of the curious after mr weld's book was completed a copy of it was sent through the mail to every editor from whose paper such advertisements had been taken and to every individual of whom any facts had been narrated with the passages which concerned them marked it is quite possible that this may have had some influence in rendering such advertisements less common men of sense often go on doing a thing which is very absurd or even inhuman simply because it has always been done before them and they follow general custom without much reflection when their attention however is called to it by a stranger who sees the thing from another point of view they become immediately sensible of the impropriety of the practice and discontinue it the reader will however be pained to notice 
when he comes to the legal part of the book that even in some of the largest cities of our slave states this barbarity has not been entirely discontinued in the year eighteen fifty the list of advertisements in mr weld's book is here inserted not to weary the reader with its painful details but that by running his eye over the dates of the papers quoted and the places of their publication he may form a fair estimate of the extent to which this atrocity was publicly practiced the wilmington north carolina advertiser of july thirteenth eighteen thirty eight contains the following advertisement one hundred dollars will be paid to any person who may apprehend and safely confined in any jail in this state a certain negro man named alfred and the same reward will be paid if satisfactory evidence is given of his having been killed he has one or more scars on one of his hands caused by his having been shot the citizens of onslow richlands onslow county may sixteenth eighteen thirty eight in the same column with the above and directly under it is the following ran away my negro man richard a reward of twenty-five dollars will be paid for his apprehension dead or alive satisfactory proof will only be required of his being killed he has with him in all probability his wife eliza who ran away from colonel thompson now a resident of alabama about the time he commenced his journey to that state durant h rhodes in the macon georgia telegraph may twenty eighth is the following about the first of march last the negro man ransom left me without the least provocation whatever i will give a reward of twenty dollars for said negro if taken dead or alive and if killed in any attempt an advance of five dollars will be paid bryant johnson crawford county georgia see the newburn north carolina spectator january fifth eighteen thirty eight for the following ran away from the subscriber a negro man named samson fifty dollars reward will be given for the delivery of him to me or his confinement in any jail so that i get him and should he resist in being taken so that violence is necessary to arrest him i will not hold any person liable for damages should the slave be killed enoch foy jones county north carolina from the charleston south carolina courier february twentieth eighteen thirty six three hundred dollars reward ran away from the subscriber in november last his two negro man named billy and pompey billy is twenty-five years old and is known as the patroon of my boat for many years in all probability he may resist in that event fifty dollars will be paid for his head end of part one chapter four george harris read by peter strong in sabetha kansas on june thirtieth two thousand eighteen